Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family business and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest, Bob Glazer, President, CEO, and Global Marketing Agency, Acceleration Partners, and the co-founder and chairman of BrandCycle. Bob's also the author of four books, Friday Forward, which we're going to talk about today, Elevate, How to Make Virtual Teams Work, and Performance Partnerships. So, Bob, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you today. So, uh, Bob, please tell us about your background and and when you started writing these books and why you did it. Uh, Yeah, I've always worked in the sort of growth company space. Um, I I used to work on the sort of in growth companies, startup, uh, venture side, uh, consulting side, and then um, started a company, Acceleration Partners, that works uh, helps fast-growing companies build uh, partner programs. So we've always been very passionate about what we do and also how we do it in terms of the type of organization we've built and our sort of philosophy on on human capital. And uh, as we started to build the company, I got passionate about those things. We, we, we tried some things, we did some things that were different. And as we saw success with those, I started to write about it, um, share it. I started this little note to my team on Fridays that was called originally called Friday Inspiration. Uh, it ended up being forwarded uh, all around the world to the point where it's several hundred thousand people uh, today, five years later. And, and so that sort of encouraged me to to delve into the the writing a little bit more and and both share those stories that were helpful to me and some of the frameworks around building an organization. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. Um, it's very impressive that you became a best-selling author and it's not just being good, but you had to be able to put a lot of effort into that. How did you mark your books to get that kind of visibility? <laughs> a lot of time and effort. I, I've talked to, talked to anyone I think who's published a book that they will likely tell you that the launch and marketing of a book was harder than, than writing the book, right? It's good content is, uh, particularly if you're a new author, I think good content will eventually rise to the top, but it's noisy out there and you got to make your focus. So I, I really just, I, I leaned into uh, my, my network and people I knew who had been impacted from the writing the stories and look to them to support. And I, I just worked with a, a, a lot of people. Um, I had, you know, people conferences and stuff that were interesting, really, you know, tying that to the, to the book and the writing. So it was a, it's a very strategic, mo- most book launches are, 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 and no one told me this before, but they are one year long uh, endeavors trying to focus on one week, which is, uh, which is, which is a lot. So if you, if you haven't done it before, you're in the process, um, it's, it's a job into itself. And I, so I would, I would, I would definitely suggest that people hire someone either externally or internally to really captain that or project management that. I agree with you totally because I've written six books and I ended up hiring a publicist that they got me on CNN and Bloomberg and all these different things. But if you didn't have that going for it, because the publisher doesn't do a lot for you to help promote books. 
And then even with that, right, each of those things, there's questions, there's prep, there's people want, you know, they want to do an article, you got to edit it, you got to send stuff. So there's, even if you have a publicist, you, you probably even still need, whether it's an EA or otherwise, you need some basic project management, right? So without question. So um, what is spiritual capacity? You write about this in your book and, and why is it important? Yeah, so so the whole framework of capacity building uh, has four elements. I think it starts with spiritual, spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional. Uh, I, spiritual is not a religious word. Uh, I went through hundreds of choices and, and, and really just settled that was the closest to the meaning. But really, it's about who you are and what you want. And for most people, I think it is the articulation of their personal core values in terms of... Um, being able to actually understand what they value, because I think that's a, it, that is a driver for so many people. I think it's a blind driver for many people and it's an open book driver for a lot of people. And when that's an open book, you will make much better decisions about your time and energy. I, I thought the, I, I really enjoyed the book and I thought it was a, uh, an easy, quick read, but substantive. Why did you write this particular book? I wrote that big book because the book that I wrote before it was rejected by everyone. So I actually, as Friday Ford started to take off and make an impact, I really wanted to write a compilation around sort of some of these stories, the impact that they had had. Um, most of the publishers, uh, the feedback I got, they weren't interested in compilations. This was probably four or five years ago. I did not have a, a, a much of a platform. Um, one of the agents challenged me to sort of come back with what was the story behind Friday Ford. And, and so I started to look at, so what was it about these notes that had, you know, had people all over the world writing me back, telling me they were making an impact, changing their lives, look forward to me each week. What had I done personally to really take my life to a different level in the last couple of years? And what, what would we do to grow our company and with our people? And when I, when I, kept making notes and drawing concentric circles. I just came across these themes and I said, oh, this is this capacity thing. This is what I've been focused on internally, externally. And that sort of led to uh, Elevate and, and using those stories to, to, to show the framework behind it. I was able to connect each of the Friday Ford stories to one or more elements. Uh, I still wanted to, to release that book. So the Friday Ford book I still released. When I went back to my publishers years later, after people were really interested in the capacity building, I said, I want to release that book and I'm going to tie you know, them to capacity building these stories now that really makes the connection. And they were like, that's great. Let's do that. So I was excited. You know, sometimes it's just the right idea, wrong time. Uh, it was resoundedly rejected five years ago and, and the time was, was right for it now. And people seem to enjoy the fact that it's not necessarily a book you read from the beginning to, to the end. You can read five pages at a time. Well, I think it's one of those books that you end up going back to all the time. You know, like there are books that you read, like a biography, you might not ever pick that biography up again. Yeah. But this one will be one that you go back because it kind of gives you new ideas about how you can reconfigure yourself to get yourself back on track if you've gotten off track or you don't feel like you're on track at all. And it gives you yeah. good ideas for that. So I, I thought that was good. You talk about everyone. Uh, does everyone have a set of values? Because you talk about values. But I wonder, does everyone have a set of values? I think people all have values. I think the difference is the people who know them are the people who just know when they're crossed. So the analogy I like to use is, imagine you're driving a car in a dark tunnel. You're gonna hit the wall, it's gonna screech, it's gonna mess up the paint, you're gonna move the car off, you're gonna drive, you're gonna hit the other wall. You're gonna make it through that tunnel, but your car is gonna look pretty beat up. Um, I, I think if you turn on the lights and you saw the yellow lines, you'd know where you should stay in the lane and where you should stay away from. 
to me, that is a perfect metaphor for core values. Most people know when they run into trouble or there's a violation, but we can actually articulate your core values and, and proactively say, I should be doing this. I should not be doing this. I should make this decision. Uh, I talk about the big three. So, you know, where you choose to live, who you choose to be your partner and what you choose as your vocation or where you're going to work. I, I think if those decisions are not core value aligned, they have a very low chance of success. It's funny. And I have a, this question much later among my questions, but you say that you are the five, you uh, take from someone else, I believe this, that you are the five people that you are in constant contact with. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So Jim Rome says you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. I, one of the best quotes of all time. And so to me, that is, you should, you know, take a hard look at your group. Are these people pulling you down, telling you you can't do stuff, trying to like keep you at their level? Or are they people that are pushing you, inspiring you, causing you to be your best self? I, that group is going to be your echo chamber. And I think that's very reflective of, we're byproducts of our environment. So I think it'll be very reflective of the company you keep. Many people and especially organizations write down their values, but they often go out the window over money, ca uh, catastrophe or prejudice. How do you develop sincere, substantive values as a person, organization, and live by them? Yeah, I, mo most people are just, I was very cynical about organizational core values 10 years ago until I really started to see what it looked like, what good culture looked like, because most people are not actually picking things that ties to the behaviors that they value. So if you're Enron, right, and you're picking integrity and teamwork and all these things and putting them all over your walls, and literally that's not how you get a promotion at, at Enron, then those are not your core values. So core values to me are, are differentiated point of view. You think about like Southwest Airlines, they say like fun, love and attitude, warrior spirit. They're not talking about like integrity and teamwork. They're talking about things that make Southwest different and, and behaviors that are rewarded implicitly and explicitly at Southwest. So a great culture of core values are when you just, what you think, what you say and what you do are actually aligned, everything else, is done for the wrong reasons. Like you, you should have that. You should want people to behave that way and you should reward them or punish them, you know, for behavior that is not in line with those values. You know, I, I think there is a significant difference because like you said, you go into offices and you see their core values, but they're bullshit. Yeah, there's a hundred of them and they, any company could say those same words right. and all that stuff. But the one, the example you gave about Southwest and I find that they live by that. Anytime you lose Southwest, you see exactly, exactly that. Yeah, there's a great story of this woman who uh, was getting on a flight named Peggy Uli. And I contrast this with United, who dragged a passenger off the plane and bloodied him by for not giving him an extra $100 voucher. And they say their core values were fly friendly, fly right, fly United, or something like that. Southwest had this woman who was about to take off. They found out her son was in a car crash and was in a coma. They pulled the plane back in, pulled her off, got her luggage, put her on another plane, made her a meal, sent her in a car, did the whole thing, you know, got her to her, her son, checked on her. That was not in the operating manual anywhere. It didn't know more where they told how to handle the situation that way. That was actually, you know, servant's heart, warrior spirit. Like they, they, they were just doing what they knew and told how to do. No one had to ask for permission. Those are real values when the people in your company behave in that way without having to be told to do it. Yeah, and I think we see, need to see more of that in society on an ongoing basis. Uh, talk about the concept of one last talk and why you thought this concept was important enough to mention in your book. 
So one last talk is uh, a, a concept put together by uh, someone who's become a friend, Philip McKernan, an incredible coach on sort of clarity and helping people find their truth. And he scheduled these where people go up and they give the talk that they need to give if it was the last day on earth. And so these are not superficial topics and talks. They're pretty deep. We, I, I, I had seen some examples. We actually brought him to do this at our company and coached some people to do it at our, our annual retreat. And uh, it's just incredibly powerful in terms of people kind of connecting to their truth and, and being vulnerable and encouraging vulnerability uh, among the teams. And I, I just think there's so much that we sort of hide behind that impacts who we are and what we do. And, and I think these people were really able to help other people by sharing their, their own truth. I think uh, we had another author that came on and he spoke about being honest with people, even when you don't know things or you're cons- or you're not sure about what what to do next and, and not to bluff your way through it, but actually share with people. I mean, so I'm not saying share everything, but share those, those things so people can see you're a real person and relate to you. And it helps them. If anyone's ever been in any sort of forum, you know, business or otherwise or support group, I mean, you just, when people actually start sharing, you see everyone's got stuff going on that's personal and deep and impacts who they are. You know, Philip's one of these people where people will come to him and they say, all right, my talk is the three tips to a happy life. And he's like, that's not your talk. (laughs) That's not the last thing that you want to tell people before you leave the world. Like, why did the concept of a happy life become important to you? That's probably your, your talk. So he, you know, he's one of those people who pushes you deeply. Um, what was the worst calamity of your personal professional life and what did you learn and how did it change you for the better? Um, I mean, there are a couple of choices. I mean, the last five months has been, you know, incredibly difficult, I think from, uh, I, I would say not personally, uh, I had a major talk about in the book. I won't give the whole story away, major panic attack. That was a very sort of turning point to me because I thought I was dying of a heart attack, um, 12 years ago. Uh, but, but I, I think the last couple of months have been really difficult because it's not only a business situation. It is a deeply human situation, people are really struggling. And I think it's required a level of, of effort and, and um, sort of walking the tightrope around, around many things that I haven't had to manage through before. Most people on my team haven't. Um, so I, I think definitely has tested us in ways um, that we haven't been tested before. It's very easy to be good at this stuff when things are going well. We, we haven't been perfect, um, but I think we commit to trying to learn quickly from our, our mistakes and, and, and not make them twice. I have to tell you, this has been stressful for everybody. I've had business partners who uh, need mental health checks themselves. Uh, I myself was supposed to fly yesterday for my daughter's 30th birthday, which is tomorrow, uh, and I broke my ankle. And so that's keeping me from flying, but I was really dying to be able to go and be there for her for her 30th birthday. And, you know, if you didn't have this COVID and what's going on, that may have been a a different story and so forth. So I think you're right that this has been a very challenging time for people mentally. And I see people going back to offices. I don't see this concept of everybody working from home being permanent because I think the vast majority of people need to interact with other people. What do you think? 
Uh, I'm split. I think that uh, I actually don't think this is in any way a normal remote working environment because you don't have the social flexibility and outlets that a lot of people enjoy from it in terms of travel or going to do a spin class or hanging out with people, you know, and using that flexibility. And a lot of people with young kids have their kids home doing homeschool. So I, I, it's not an idea. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not a, a sensationalist on one way. I, I think you're going to see a lot more flexible work environments. I don't think offices are dead, but I think you're going to see a lot of employers realize their value to remote work and embracing it. But the mental health stuff is, is real. In fact, I think the struggle for a lot of leaders is that they don't know whether they're dealing with a work issue or they're dealing with a, a personal issue that affects the capacity that people have when they show up to work. I had one person on my team just say, you know, we're in services. So everything we're dealing with people, partners, each other, there's no product other than people. And just said, my, my, my emotional ATM is over withdrawn <laughs> this last month. And so, you know, she's dealing with COVID herself and her family and stuff, but then also dealing with all the, her people on her team who have a lot of these fears and anxieties. And, it's a lot on people. And I, I look, I think we're headed for a long couple of months. We've tried to be very honest with people. This is not, it's not, it's not over and may actually get worse before it gets better. Yeah, for sure. I think they're looking at a cure that will be released maybe second quarter of next year and a second wave coming up. And so it's been super hard for people who even lost their jobs and so forth. Uh, you write about the myth of work-life balance. What is your perspective on work-life balance? I think the term itself uh, gives us some mythical thing that it will be in balance. Like, and, and really, I'm not sure that's what people want, right? They do not want to be on this call, like with my baby, you know, right here next to me. Like that, that I can say I'm balanced. I have working and baby. What they actually want is good working time and they want good family and personal and quality experiences. So I much prefer the term work and life integration. And I don't, I don't think it's just semantics because I think you understand that these things won't be in balance. Some weeks might be 70% uh, you, it might be 70% family, it might be 70% work. It, it, you're looking for the combination of those things over time to form a meaningful whole. You're not trying to measure success by like how you balanced within an hour, within a day. I think if we did that, we would all feel really unsuccessful in terms of that we were balanced. I think um, people under the age of 40 have looked at their parents especially if they're entrepreneurs like my daughter look at me and you're working 12 hours a day, sometimes at least six days, sometimes seven days and saying, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's not balanced. Yeah, there's no balance there. And I heard venture capital saying in Silicon Valley that they're finding from young entrepreneurs that they're investing in, they're telling them, if you're thinking we're going to work seven days a week, don't put the money in because we're not going to do that. Yeah. And it's like uh, for the older venture capitalists, they're like uh, surprised. But I think that these folks worry about that balance, um, making sure their marriages are successful, successful with their kids, and not burning out as well. Do you see a lot of that as well? Yeah, and I think to that example of the entrepreneur, like, look, there are going to be weeks where you work 80 hours, but then hopefully you take the flexibility and say, and I'm also going to go take a sabbatical for three weeks or, or you know, use that in different ways. I, I think this is a little bit where it does come back to the core values, the things that, that if you can lean into and really focus on the things that align your value, they tend to be the things that um, give you energy and that you in, in, in enjoy doing more. But I, I do think one societal shift that I've seen, like particularly res 
with respect to like sleep and health is that we were selling, Marissa Meyer was sort of the poster child for this at Yahoo five to 10 years ago, but we were, we were celebrating people that didn't sleep and 138 hour work weeks. And, and that was sort of the definite. Now you have people like Jack Dorsey and, uh, and Tim Cook and other people talking about their eight and nine hours of sleep. Like, I, I, I do think the, the narrative on that has, has changed to, you know, what, what is healthy behavior and what is not healthy behavior. How, how many hours a week do you work and what's your expectation of your own people? Uh, my expectation of myself is probably worse than my, my own people. Um, look, people don't work in our organization on the weekend, really, um, in, unless there's some extraordinary uh, thing that they have to do. And we're, we're pretty flexible. So I have a bunch of different, I mean, I write books, I do stuff that's outside of work. So for me, that's enjoyable. But as an example, on a Saturday morning, I usually am up early. I like uh, all the emails I ignored during the week. I get coffee. Like I'm, I have time to respond to them and go through them. What I've actually learned to do is to delay all those responses until Monday morning. I, I actually find it, it's a good time for me to go through email then, but I don't want anyone else to feel like they have to respond over the weekend or because they're getting you know a note from, from me. So uh, I, I, I try to be cognizant of that. That was a tip I heard from someone years ago because you know if they see an email back on Saturday, they feel like they have to respond. I mean, pe- people know what they need to get done and generally give them a fair amount of flexibility to do I that. I typically work Sunday through Friday and I take off a little bit earlier on Friday, but I like working Sunday because it's like a dead day, but you also can reach a lot of uh, significant people on Sunday because they're kind of catching up from weekly yeah. record and they- yeah, if, I, if I'm ever sending a cold email to someone I want to get in touch with, I agree with you. Sending it, you know, because you know they're the type of people that tend to work hard and sending it at the non-traffic hours is a good strategy. Yeah, that's always worked very well for me. Uh, you mentioned how Ray Dalio, uh, Ray Dalio uh, who wrote the book Principles uh, and is a world-famous private equity uh, leader, mentioned how he handled failure, which in light of changing CEOs, I think it's now six CEOs in six years, uh, I'm questioning how he really handles failure. How do you reward failure? Yeah, so so uh, I, I'm not sure. I think it was about mistakes versus failure. I didn't know that they were through C, three CEOs. But what he realized was that if people were encouraged, if, if, if they hid their mistakes at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, like that it would get out of control very quickly and create systematic risk and that he would not fire someone. I think there's mistakes and then failure. You might argue that he'd probably argue that if he made the mistake six times in a row signing CEO, then he probably should be fired from that job because you should not make the same mistake. But basically he created a mistake log and it became that mistakes were something to be learned from, you know, you shouldn't repeat them. And that, you know, if you, if you, uh, failure to disclose a mistake was a fireable offense, um, not putting it in the mistake log, but making a mistake was not a fireable offense. And I think that set an important cultural distinction. I mean, the opposite example is look at, you know, Volkswagen's en- engine debacle. That all came about because the CEO was this very sort of power hungry guy, Martin, and he, he, he just abhorred failure. And he made it clear that failure was like not an option. And so he stated these like very lofty mileage uh, and, and, and emission standards for this new engine and the engineers couldn't meet it. And, and when they couldn't meet it, they were afraid to tell him that. So they used all their creative ingenuity to figure out how to cheat <laughs> and create a, a cheat system. But, but that was exactly a byproduct of an environment where instead of saying, look, we could do it, but we need three months or we can only get one or the other, you know, his complete intolerance of failure caused people to do really unethical things there. 
Yeah. And how do you handle failure in your own organization? I'm sort of more on the Dalio approach. Like we, we, we talk about it. We share the learnings about it. Like I, I just, I hate repeated mistakes. That's the thing that really gets me. Like we should not be making the same mistake two or three times. That's, that is a failure to learn, but you're always going to make mistakes and why you want to share that is because you want to make sure that the next person doesn't make the same one or that you learn something along the way. So we write debriefs, like we're pretty open about that. I, I actually fired somebody for not telling us that she saw the accident coming. Like after it happened, she said, yeah, I saw that coming. And I said, if you saw it, you should have told us and we wouldn't waste our time. You're fired. The only thing you have to be careful about that is, is you know, and, and it depends on the company, like was the culture really clear about, you know, did, did the culture encourage that or, or, or did it not, right? Because people will behave in line with the culture. So if you always talked about that, like if someone hit a mistake and we had this situation, they hid something, we gave them three times to be honest, they didn't, and we fired them and it was not a good situation, but, but we have a core value of own it. And they did not own it on the first three times they were given you know, a chance to, to own it. And so I, I felt very confident that we talk about that enough and that person should have very clearly known that they should have come to that and that that was actually a, a personal failure not an organizational failure. But in some cases, a manager or a leader may send signals to people that causes them to behave in a certain way. Without question. I know in my case, I, I would go to everybody and says, anybody think we're making a mistake here? <laughs> Yeah. And as long as you didn't scream at them, then that's yeah. on them. When yeah. they told and, you. And, yeah. and everybody was really upset when she said that. And they were, afterwards, they said, I'm glad you fired her because yeah. you can't have somebody like that around if they really yeah. want it. Well, also people probably look around from a value standpoint and say, look, that person's going to be a, a Monday morning quarterback. And that, you know, that's not the type of person I want. Oh, I knew that. I knew that was the wrong choice, but I wasn't willing to speak out. No one wants to work with that person. That's right? funny because in future people that we brought into the organization, they screen for that. Yeah. And, and told them, said, you know, you got to tell us if you think we're doing something wrong in, in anything at all, or you can end up being yeah. let go. Um, from working with a variety of leaders, who or what is the difference between a Hall of Famer and, in, and good terms, mental mindset, managing setbacks and people, you know, who's good, who's really good at that? Or what's the profile of the people you've seen? The profile is, is authenticity and alignment, because I think they draw in the people, honestly, who, who, who are drawn to that, right? I, so, so whether very different people like Elon Musk and Tim Cook, very different types of leaders, but I think you, you, back to that think, say, and do, I think their think, say, and do are aligned. What you see is what you get. And, and to me, that is the hallmark of a good leader so that people can choose which causes and things they want to align to. What, what frustrates people is someone who is always switching their reasoning or saying one thing or doing another. Like I always say, there could be two companies, two great organizations. One grows 5% a year, values tenure, family. They've been around in a slow going industry forever. And they just really value sort of loyalty and teamwork. The other is in a fast growing industry that grows 70 or 80% a year, they value sort of competition, winning, their bonuses go to the few people. Both can be great organizations. If they just are very clear to fly the flag of 
someone in this organization would probably hate that one and vice versa. But the, but well, the only problem is if the competitive organization that pays 10% of the bonus to 90% of the people starts telling everyone in recruiting, oh, we value teamwork and we value this. And then when it's not actually the truth, if they say, look, we value winning and expedient to market and, and having be the best, people can go play that game and they'll happily play that game knowing the game that they're playing. So I, that that is the consistent thing for me. You just, whether I agree with someone that they are just, they have that level of authenticity and consistency in everything they do. And therefore they attract the right people for that organization's mission. Yeah, I, I agree with you. If you know this is how the organization is, you can decide if that's for you or not for you. Yeah. And, and so few people just want to say it up front. I will say to, if people interview with me or work with my team, I'm like, here's why you will love working for me. And here's why you'll hate working for me. Like I try to be as clear and they're the same reason. <laughs> so I, I try to be as clear as I can with that. Up now, front. this is not a question related to your book, but people want to know what's the machine on the bar behind you? Is it a coffee machine? Uh, yeah, this is, I need backstories on this. This is, this is not a real background. Um, so people ask me about the water skis and I've almost developed a full backstory now, but yes, I think that is a gravity based, uh, coffee machine, but this is my, uh, green screen COVID, uh, virtual background. I have to say that green screen looks really real. I really thought this was the best at home purchase I made was $150 pop-up green screen off Amazon. It just, it makes any of the background stuff better. Uh, and if some kid runs across the back, then you, you won't, you won't see them. Yeah, that's good. So now we have the answer to that. Um, you wrote about Candy's goal of landing on the moon. What impressed you about Apollo 11 and what should people take away from that? Yeah, I think just how much of a sort of BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal that was. And it was very specific when you do, you know, they didn't say, they said, we're going to be on the moon by X, right? And I, I, it's amazing what people can accomplish when you rally, you know, and in doing that, they rallied all these competitors and the whole industry around a single point. So I think when you, when you put something in sand and you tell people it's going to happen and you rally people around that mission, it's pretty crazy what people can do. I mean, I, one of the stats I saw as they celebrated the anniversary was that the, uh, I think an iPhone has like 10 million times more processing power than the computer on the, on the Apollo mission did. So to think about how they made that work with technology 50 years ago is, is pretty extraordinary. Aren't those the kind of the rock star CEOs that we like who pick these big, audacious, hairy goals? Yeah there's a couple of stories to that, right? It was big, hairy, audacious. It was hard. It was huge. It was time. And then, but it also was a like massive expenditure. Like it was at, a, at any cost thing that, you know, people have criticized forever. So you, you do have to look at, I mean, I think in today's dollars, it would be, I don't know, some meaningful portion of our, our GDP, I think. So, so yeah, it is right. not, there's a whole separate question of, should you have done that? But, but it does show the power of, of harnessing that. I think how many people became engineers because of that Yeah, and the impact they had size. So whatever that investment was, if you think about all the outlying investments that came from that, and let's face it, a lot of the people that we see today, like Elon Musk, probably were yeah. influenced by what happened there. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're talking about mining asteroids on Mars and it doesn't seem that crazy if you look at what Elon Musk is, has accomplished. Is there some CEOs that you're really impressed with and how they've been able to motivate not just themselves and their people, but entire industries and raise the level of competition? 
Yeah, so my favorite CEO who died last year was Herb Kelleher from Southwest. And ironically, like, I don't love flying Southwest because I fly a lot and I like my first class seat that I get upgraded to and getting on the plane early and not standing in line and all that stuff. But I just, so impressive to me what they built and a real company based on culture that their organization, Southwest from 1980 to 2000, earned more profit than the entire airline industry. I was just talking to someone today, just his his reputation with the unions, like was just, you know, non-adversarial at all. And I just, I think he was an incredible founder turned CEO and that, you know, if people study the the culture and the organization of of Southwest, it's, to me, it's more impressive to do that in like, someone once said it's the vortex of the worst business you would ever want to be in, which is airline industry and low cost value proposition, right? Like if you, if you had to pick industries that you didn't want to be in and, and value props that you wouldn't want to take, like those are a pretty hard one. And, and they just built this incredible organization. I always think when I fly Southwest, I enjoy that experience so much more than flying anybody else because I like this idea that you just fill in the seats that, you yeah. know, yeah. For an hour, yeah. yeah, maybe six hours is different. So yeah, like I said, Flying to California from Boston, I'll take my free <laughs> Delta upgrade very um, happily. So, why is it important uh, to recognize what what you aren't good at as an individual and an organization? Yeah, because you're going to need different people who are good at different stuff. So, uh, if I'm bad at something, particularly I think an executive, you better make sure your EA is good at it, right? You better kind of understand that I, I'm a big believer in not focusing on un, understanding weaknesses, not focusing on them. I think you're mitigating them. You're not trying to make them better. They're just not things that you like or do well. And and you should really build a team around complementary. Uh, strength. So if, if there's this thing called the Johari window, kind of like what you know about yourself, what other people know about you, if you have a pretty big blind spot uh, about a weakness, that's that's not usually a good thing. You're likely to hire probably more people that have the same strengths and weaknesses you as you. have a somebody that checks on you that makes sure that you're not flying and uh, driving the car into the ditch or gives you the honest feedback in your own organization? Yeah. I don't trust myself. So I have multiple, I mean, I built a, we, we don't have investors, but I built a pretty, a board that meets and gives us pretty direct feedback and acts as a check and balance. I have several coaches that I work with and I have people on my team that push back. I have a number two, who, you know, my job is to drive new ideas. And I would say like, if he tells me two out of the 10 ideas are half decent, then that, that's a good, that's a good batting average. So we, we have a very good sort of founder operator dynamic where there is healthy conflict, uh, where, you know, I'm, I'm often pushing him to, to get out of operation and be more visionary more. And he's pushing me to sort of not distracting people in the reality of what the business needs currently. Uh, and, and yeah, so I think, I think you want, you want those people on your team who are willing to, you know, I get those calls from multiple people. I'm, hey, I got you, you really pissed off people with what you said on that call yesterday and they're willing to tell me the truth, which, which I value. How do you get your managers to do that themselves? Because I think there's always a fear with people that if they open themselves up, that they'll be looked at as weak. So how do you do it? I, these things you just have to model, right? So I think they have to see other people doing it. They have to see that there is not something that they could call our exec team. I might not agree with them, but if they call and tell me something, I, the answer will be, thank you for sharing that. That will be the first thing, right? And then, uh, you know, try to sort of reinforce the positive behavior. So there, there, there's two types of 
of people, I think, in, in leadership. And I've, I've been thinking about how to write about this because I've seen it a lot. They're, they're the people that like, they get the feedback and they kind of don't want it. And then the people who really do want it and, and get better on it. And, and that latter group is, is the one who become the top performers in the organization and the others, uh, I, I think it, to me, that's the sort of distinct difference. So someone who naturally actually wants to be better like no wants to know their blind spots, wants their weakness to be pointed out so that that is a point of improvement for them. The person who doesn't want that is sort of, I think, worried about exposing something that they are self-conscious about. Have you ever had people that work really, really hard? They're trying to do everything right, but they're still not getting it. And what, how have you worked with them and did they survive in your organization? We have this concept called mindful transition, like a kind of an open transition program, understanding that people are not going to work at our company forever. Things are going to change. It's funny. I actually think this, this, there's a dynamic that's really switched. We know we're not in lifelong employment anymore, but from the employee standpoint, I think employees feel like they could leave at any reason for any time. And like the fact that they wanted to do something different, it, you know, no one should be upset about that, but then anyone is very upset if an employer wants to do something different. So I, I think there's this weird dynamic now that we're not, we're, we're in casual employment, but, but it, it is treated. And I understand you're talking about people's livelihoods on one end and uh, different on another end, but it is a weird imbalance. I, I just believe in having, and this goes to a core value, respectfully authentic conversations with people around uh, what's working, what's not working. Are they actually even in the right job? Is this what they want to do? Uh, you know, the example, I was just talking with someone else on a call, like, let's say we're talking with uh, William, you know, here and William's just not a good manager, right? Um, well, I can tell William, you're a terrible manager and you shouldn't manage people and I could attack and probably screw up his confidence for his next two or three jobs. Or I could say, William, we've had you as a manager here for a while. We've trained you, you've done our manager training. Like it, it's not working. Your team's giving you very poor scores. I, I, it may be that you may not want to be a manager that you actually like selling and you want to be an individual contributor. And, and so we try to focus on if it's not working, it's probably that they are just misaligned with what they want to do. Have a conversation. We might have that role in our organization. We might not. So we might help William say, look, you need to go find an individual contributor role. These people need a good manager and I can't, we've invested enough to knowing you like it's not going to work now, but let's see how we can find you a good place in the organization or outside. Like we don't have to throw out the baby with the, with the bathwater, but I also can't let those four people continue to be managed by someone who's a terrible manager and have them all yeah, quit. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, I read where you were thinking about uh, not going to your first Super Bowl. You're insane. I don't know. I would never give up the chance to do that. Why would you ever not, uh, why would you ever not do or take advantage of seeing one of the great experiences of any American's life? There's a little miss. So I was going, the story was about the decision at last minute to bring my son along at an, ex at an extraordinary expense. So I was going either way. <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the thing we had a chance last minute to add him with, with great expense and, and, and great uh, logistical uh, uh, challenges. And it was, just, it was this thing of like, you know what, there'll be another time. But as it turns out, there never was now I know there never was another Tom Brady, you know, Super Bowl that we could have uh, gone to. I mean, there was one, more but you know now that era is over one right where he came back from 28 yeah that was the best one so we were at the greatest super bowl comeback in history and uh it was actually a friday ford i had written two weeks before that came into my head as i was trying to 
tell my wife that we had to send him on a plane by himself at 11. And it was like, we don't regret the things that we do. You know, we almost only regret the things that we didn't do. One of the questions we have is, uh, I found uh, trust your gut on big decisions to be true. Have you found this to be accurate or not? Yeah, I, I, I believe in, I wrote about this recently. I believe that, that a lot of your gut is sort of Malcolm Gladwell's book blink that your gut is actually a lot of data processing pretty, pretty quickly. Um, one thing I, I I've noticed with employees or otherwise, I, I think I, I, my gut is often wrong on who to partner with or who to hire, because I think we fall with a lot of bias. We tend to fall with people who are uh, charismatic and maybe say the right things, but don't do the right things. But in terms of danger avoidance, I think our guts are really good. So I've actually been much better on who not to hire, who not to get business in. I, I, I think our, our spidey sense as a threat detector uh, is a little more reliable than potentially sometimes falling in love with someone who is not what we, what, what I don't mean personally necessarily, but not what they see. I think that happens in venture capital all the time, that if you didn't meet this person at all and just looked at it objectively, you might make a better decision. But when you get closer to the action, you actually get to know the people. And I think that happens a lot in sports when they interview somebody. They say, oh my God, this guy's going to be great. I just love just being around this person. And then it turns out not to be the case. And somebody seeing in the stands would evaluate it better because they don't know anything about this person. Yeah, and I, the thing about sports that's so interesting with free agent is that everyone who has the better look at the person offers them less money than the person right. who doesn't, right? Everyone suddenly thinks that that player is gonna be better on that team or I, it's always, it, it's very interesting dynamic that, that, that happens um, versus the people who have had the most data collection on the In person. Philly, we have a lot of buyer's remorse and a lot of players that we bring here. And so- Free agent is mostly buyer's yeah, remorse you know, the team, for, the for the a lot of yeah. Why is intellectual curiosity yeah. important to success? And, and you're right about uh, you write about discipline associated with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of there's almost a discipline in, in in being curious and think about like how do I reinvent my business before someone else does, right? If you're not curious, if you're not looking forward, if you are running the best horse buggy repair shop in the world, you don't have any customers right now, right? So I, I think that you need to be constantly curious, looking at what's next. I mean, let's look at the restaurants in COVID who sort of were paralyzed and didn't know what to do. The ones who flipped to delivery operations and were all in you know, overnight and were able to just at least keep people staffed and, and the kitchen. So I, I, yeah, I think that if you're, if you're under an assumption that we'll always do it the way it's been done, uh, that will stop working one day. Uh, what companies have you noticed or you see right now that you say, you know what, I don't think these guys are going to be around 10 years from now. I, I think the people that just uh, refuse to embrace digital in any way. Someone was telling me the story of, of the person that cuts their hair, you know, was just always uh, drop in only. And like, think about how inefficient that is. So four people come at the same time or no one comes for three hours and you couldn't make an appointment. And because of COVID, she's gone to the spreadsheet and all this stuff. And she's like, God, I should have done this 10 years ago. I, I mean, this is 10 times better for my for my business. So I, I, I think you see a lot of that. I mean, if people are digging in their heels now, if they're not understanding that digital is going to be some part of whatever business they are in, I just, I think that's like the horse and buggy repair person. I just think that's the wrong side of history that you're going to be on. I mean, I think we see that all the time. I mean, there were all these 
star players 25 years ago, like Wang Laboratory, Digital Computer, all these folks. And now you don't see any of those people. They just haven't survived. Yeah. The only, con the only constant is change. I also think that when the entrepreneur leaves, that's when the, uh, when the building starts to fall apart. Uh, because all of a sudden, the board likes a finance person to be running yeah. that business, and there's no vision anymore. Most, right. Most great long-term businesses, uh, you know, this was this was Oracle, Larry Ellison, and Raylene. This was the Disney brothers. This was this was Tim Cook and and Steve Jobs. Right. They had the operator and the visionary, and there was that mutual respect of that those were jobs to be done. I, I, there's a guy who, who shows the stages of, of businesses, uh, Greg McEwen, uh, that, that has this thing. One of the things I think people don't realize is companies get big enough, he calls it the treadmill of death. They get big enough that they could be in decline for like 20 years, right? It's just, there's enough self-propagating size and whatever that they've, 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 they've been dying for many, many years. I wonder if Apple's that, because even though they have more money than most countries, I mean, literally, you know, the, yeah. the amount of money they have in the bank is more than some countries making it, most countries making yeah. a year. But since Steve Jobs died, really, they haven't come up with anything uh, new. I mean, they're really living off of events. They, they, they're still innovating. I don't think they have that 10X innovation, but they are still innovating, right? I mean, the watch is a pretty big product in their ecosystem for them now. They're actually, if you notice that Apple's pivoting a massive part of their business to services, um, you know, and, and then they just launched all the subscription stuff. So I, I, they're more in the middle on there. I think, uh, I think, I think the spirit of, of Steve lives on. I, I think that, um, and they are still innovating. I mean, you just have some companies though. Even someone pointed out, like, I think Microsoft until the last five or six years was just in that 20 year decline, but, but, but actually they are really flipped themselves into cloud and growth now. And, you know, you got people wanting surfaces and using office 365 and, you know, not cause their massive company was, was deploying it. No, I think the current CEO has done an amazing job making even a, I taught 10 years at Wharton my students who would work at Microsoft would say, ah, oh, it's boring. There's a lot of fiefdoms in there. And I don't feel like we're doing anything amazing. And all my students who worked at Apple, like, oh my God, this is the most amazing experience I ever had. And, and most of them were working there when Steve Jobs was running it. But now I'm sure if you go to Microsoft now and students who are working there saying, Microsoft is an amazing place because they're now, again, uh, near the top of what people want to be involved in. Yeah. Do you see a backlash to surveillance marketing and digital around privacy? And if so, what is the counter marketing approach? I mean, there's two things, right? I think there is in marketing, there's a lot of laws and legislation, you know, in Europe and that's coming into the California, why can't I think of the name? Cause we dealt with it for a year, but now the California privacy law. So yeah, I do think there's more control. Look, Apple's making a clear stance. They have this great new ad. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it with the person yelling out his heart rate and stuff in public. Um, and the woman yelling out that she's searching for a divorce lawyer. Uh, the guy, the, 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 it's a great ad. And so I, I think there are camps out there making it clear that they're in the privacy or not. Um, there's a whole industry, you know, now even the remote work. There's a, I think there's going to be this whole sector of employee spying and implying. Are, are there companies operating on outcome bases? Or are they trying to monitor keystrokes of employees? And I, I, I think I'm really fascinated to watch how that plays out. We've been remote for for ten years, and I'm a big advocate of not spying on your employees. I, I think you'll. It just is this cat and mouse game of technology that that is, it means that you're measuring the wrong things. Well, you're taking all the fun out of it yourself if you're not spying on them. <laughs> um, 
you clearly do a lot of thinking. Is it organized and how do you uh, not get caught up in the unnecessary? And you write about this in your book. Uh, yes and no. I think it's good to be organized and it's good to be messy. I, I tend to use uh, OneNote and I have different thematic things or an article I might want to write or upcoming Friday forwards and I'll take notes and pull themes together and because stuff comes and it goes. Um, and, and oftentimes maybe it's a pattern that was culminated with, oh, I just saw this happen today and I had talked about that theme and made some note about that theme. So it's the perfect time to bring that together into a piece of writing. So a lot of times it could be it could be a couple notes over a year, or it could be you know something in reaction to something that's going on that day. It, it is a little across the board. Can you please talk about the myth of the overnight success and how long it took you to reach a level that you felt like, hey, I finally arrived? And what do you tell your kids, by the way? Uh, so my, my operating uh, method for my kids is this phrase, um, you, you, you can be anything you desire if you're willing to do what's required. So I, I, I see parenting go on two spectrums. One, you can be anything and we're on your side and, you know, no accountability for that. And then on the other people telling them what they can't do. I, I, I think, you know, for son's talking about wanting to be a professional soccer player, I'd be like, yeah, you could do that. Here's what's required. You want to get into Harvard? You want to be get an astronaut? Here's what's actually required and here's the work. And I, I, you got to want to do it. I can't, I can't want it for you. So I, I try to be on that um, sort of healthy balance. I think the myth of the overnight success is something we all tell each other to make ourselves feel better. Um, I was talking with someone earlier this morning about, I think, you know, who does not get enough credit are like professional athletes. Like, yeah, they are talented, but these are people who practice 10 hours a day sometimes, you know, for one or two games uh, a week. And I think that if any of us put in that practice to stage effort, we would be good at what we did. And, and, and the stuff they do is physically hard. So yeah, there's talent, but actually the biggest bus in athletics are the talented people who aren't passionate and who don't want to work. Uh, you know, I think the, you'll see that, you know, the LeBron James and these guys, they just, they work hard and, and um, it, 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 it's really easy for us to be like, oh, he's just so talented and so fast and big. And just like, oh, this guy's so lucky. He started his company a year ago and he sold it for a billion dollars. One of my favorite podcasts is, is how I built this. And I love it because they go into those dark days when the thing was about to fall apart and most people will have quit and what it is they did to keep going. I, I he did, you know, Peloton is worth $3 billion now. He did one with the Peloton founder and CEO. And he talked about his wife wanted to have dinner with him over the six month period. And he said, I will only have dinner if we go and talk about whose parents we're going to live with when, as soon as we go bankrupt, Peloton goes bankrupt and how we're going to deal with like the complete falling apart of our lives and selling everything. And like, that's the conversation we need to have. Like, it's great to see the $4 billion. And this was right after they ordered the one prototype with all the money they had, and it came in 40% too big. And mm -hmm. so what, I mean, you could say, Oh, what was me? Well, they went and found some six foot seven model to, <laughs> to get on it so that it would be, you know, proportional. Like this is what you have to do. It's, it's so it's, it's great to say, Oh, Peloton, right place, right time. Like so lucky, but like listen to that podcast and you will hear the true story of what he sacrificed to make that happen. Did you mention that podcast again? How I built this with Guy Raz. Yeah. I, I, and I've heard great things about that podcast. And I think you're right about sports because I one time took uh, my daughter to see this um, uh, documentary on Michael Jordan when he was playing for the Bulls and how he would take 500 shots yeah. a day. And that he would tell the players when he thought practice should be done. So Phil Jackson 
and the coaches were leaving and he'd say, I think we still need, I still want to practice. Yeah. And then all the guys would have to stay And Steve Kerr it made a huge impression on them. And if you read saw the most recent documentary, a lot of guys hated him, but said, Hey, I'm, I have. Oh yeah. If you watch the last dance, I mean, you're just not going to outwork him. Yeah. Like you're just not. And that's all Kobe yeah. and magic and Larry Bird. And hence why Alan Iverson has no championship rings. He, he was great in the game, but didn't bring out the best and push everybody else to be the best. Yeah. I, I look, I, here's a really interesting thing I read yesterday. I was like, uh Oh, um, so, uh, Kyrie Irving, you know, incredibly talented basketball uh, player came to Boston for a year and the team did worse, you know, when he, when he played actually, cause he needs the ball so much to, to, right. to get better and left thing. He said yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, but he's I that, saw this about Steve Kerr. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe here's a player saying that, that the coaching is going to be a collaborative thing between him and all the players and that, and that Kevin Durant could be a coach and he could be a coach. I mean, he just literally like undermine his coach. I, I haven't read the reaction to it, but I saw that before I went to bed. I was like, this team's got a huge problem. If the player's already saying he's smarter than the coach. My feeling is I would, if I were Boston, I would never sign a guy who would walk away from LeBron James because he felt like, he had to have yeah. his own. That yeah. should have been the first telltale that you didn't want. I, I, but I was flabbergasted when I saw uh, that quote. That quote last night, um, saying that coaching is sort of a collaborative effort. I, I mean, I've never heard a player discredit his soon-to-be coach yeah, like that. Yeah, and especially as accomplished a p- person as um, right. So what he's he's just saying I'm smarter. Like I'm not I'm not coachable, right? Right. Yeah, I'd have to get rid of him uh, as soon as I could. Can you please talk about how El, how Elrod lifesavers and why you embrace them? Yeah, so Hal Elrod wrote this book called The Miracle Morning. It didn't really do well. He just kept going out there. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, books oftentimes make it in the beginning or they don't. I think I heard him say that they didn't reach their first month sales until month 20th. But he just believed in this. He went and did 200 podcasts. He believed that his morning routine he had developed uh, just saved his life on multiple occasions. And he just, he went and, and the acronym, acronym, I won't get them all right, but it's like silence, uh, affirmation, um, uh, there's writing, reflection. He basically went to all high performers, figured out all the aspects of their morning routine and pulled the ones that he saw everywhere and decided I'm going to do all of them, even if it's for a little bit each. And, and that's the savers routine. And, and you just, that your morning drives your day and it can be a really powerful catalyst in your, in your life. I think that's also why we love watching sports because it's obvious what it takes to be great where businesses, it does seem like, Oh my God, Mark Zuckerberg was an overnight success. And well, but yeah, it really took a while until it really took on and became a, you know, a cultural uh, phenomenon. It's like the same. We talked about books, right? Like a, like a good book with a good launch gets a lot of momentum, a, a not bad launch, a, a sort of muted launch with a good book should eventually rise to the top. Right. But you can, you can, you can manipulate a great launch for a bad book and you'll just, you'll see it, you know, go off the, charts after all the copies that people were forced to buy or bought no one actually wants to read them you have some favorite books that people may overlook that you really think highly of that are worth worth the time uh one of my favorite books like if people say what's the book you would gift is a book called mistakes were made but not by me uh and it's 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 sort of the definitive book on cognitive dissonance, like explaining cognitive dissonance, how it makes us make really bad decisions and defend ourselves in our life. And when you understand cognitive dissonance at a deep level, you just see it everywhere. You see everyone 
doing stuff to protect themselves. And it just, that book has really, really like stayed with me and resonated with me, the principles of that book. I'm wondering, uh, you wrote in your book about why, uh, why are you against to-do lists? You think are they kind of a waste of time? I, I, well, I think to-do lists are sort of, they can be okay, but I think, you know, it ends up being about volume and you can feel really good checking off six things that are not important. Um, so versus one that is, so I think, you know, looking from the lens of urgent and importance really thing. I also think that, you know, if you're adding, you, you should put on a stop doing list uh, you know, you should use a stop doing list as a counterbalance for anything that you're going to add on your do list. So it shouldn't just be more. I think most of us are already at capacity. And so thinking about what's the most important thing I can do. And if I am going to need to do this extra thing, what is something I can take off so that I actually make the list shorter? So my last question for you is, why should you put yourself first when we're all taught the opposite? Yeah. So I, I, I think you know, there's some semantics around this where I think being selfish and putting yourself first, I don't think are the same things, right? I think being selfish is not caring about other people or just caring about yourself and not sort of being very insular. Putting yourself first is, again, getting getting that clarity on spiritual capacity, making sure you're in physical good shape, making sure you are in a good position to show up for other people and help other people. Because if you burn yourself out, you cannot really do great things for anyone else. Right? So every time we get on an airplane, I think to a lot of parents, they have a little gasp when they say, you know, put your mask on before your child. And there's a reason that they tell you to do that. And I think it's a, it's a good metaphor. And, and again, I don't see putting yourself first uh, the same thing as being selfish. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on today with us. And we really enjoyed listening to you talk about your book and your observations about uh, how to be successful and I look forward to your next book. What's the next book? Uh, the next book is an updated uh, version of, I, I did a quick ebook and I, uh, it's a book on uh, how to manage virtual teams. Well, hopefully we'll have you back again. I wish you the best of luck and um, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.